Aloha and welcome to the bonus episode and welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the movie and the book Sphere. My name is Kyle. I'm Brady. And like I said up top, folks, we're going to be talking about another Michael Crichton project that was turned into a movie, much like Jurassic Park, much like we did with Congo a couple weeks ago. We had a lot of fun with that and figured that uh, Sphere would uh, be a lot of fun to talk about because it was even a better a, a better book than Congo, in my opinion. Maybe not as good as Jurassic Park, but a fantastic book. But Brady, let me ask you real quick, what is your familiarity with the uh, the property of Sphere? I haven't read the book, um, but I remember when the movie came out and the excitement beforehand and the fact that it was your favorite book you'd ever read, so I got to hear about it constantly. So I had all this buildup and all this expectation. It's the next thing from Michael Crichton, and it's got Dustin Hoffman and Samuel L. Jackson, and those guys don't really attach themselves to crap. So, uh, And then Barry Levinson was such an, an unusual choice, so how could this go wrong? So that was... Um, that was my familiarity with it was just, uh, I guess, what I had heard from you, a fan of the book. Yeah, it. Uh, whenever Jurassic Park came out, I read it and I loved it. And I decided that I was going to read everything that Michael Crichton had written up to that point. So I read, like, I think my first semester of high school, I read like Sphere, Congo, Eaters of the Dead, The Terminal Man, and- Andromeda Strain, Travels, like everything that I could get my hands on that they sold at the local like Circle K, like book rack. I just went up and bought one after another. And then I just like stopped reading altogether <laughs> for the rest of high school and much into college, which is a, a pretty big problem. But Sphere stuck out to me as my favorite of all of his books because it is uh it's it's a fantastic idea it starts off so mysterious uh the book has all these like amazing like uh, science fiction concepts to to grab onto like time travel and ufos and uh you know the power of the mind and all that kind of stuff so of course uh after jurassic park hit like we've talked about a few times on this on the show there's a real scramble to get all the rights to michael Crichton properties because if it works with jurassic park it's going to work with everything else right exactly that's the formula right yeah sure it worked because that's the magic bullet in that whole equation is just the michael Crichton aspect so um, right. would, I just ask you real quick, are, are we going to do like um, the Eaters of the Dead movie, the 13th Warrior at some point on here? I'm sorry, say that again? Are we going to do Eaters of the Dead, the 13th Warrior movie on here <laughs> at some point? You know, I don't have any memories on that except for the fact that I really liked it stylistically. So if I go into it thinking, hey, that was all I took away from this, then maybe we'll be all right. Yeah, low expectations but, uh, going no, into that one. It's kind of a yeah. retelling of Beowulf. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I, I stepped think- on that. What were you saying? Well, okay, here's the the problem going into this was Congo, the movie. Um, Because Mm -hmm. like we're saying, hey, if it's got Michael Crichton's name on it, how could it go wrong? It's going to be on the level of Jurassic Park. And that's just the problem right off the bat is that everybody's going into this with that expectation, the standard that that movie, that adaptation set. Right. Um, And so Congo comes out and does not meet the expectations that a lot of people had. And it was trying to be Jurassic Park. And that was a, another part of the problem, aside from the fact that it's in the hands of someone who just shouldn't be in the director's chair. And, and now we're going into something that's being helmed by an Academy Award nominee several times. Uh, he's got such an interesting body of work. And all of it is emotionally driven, dr- you know, dramatic character study. So we're going into a Michael Crichton thing that's going to have action elements. It's going to have science fiction. But at the forefront is going to be the human element the thought behind it and how could you go wrong with that but a lot of people had forgotten congo a lot of people had written congo off and so expectations were extremely high going into this i do want to say right up front something that i applaud sphere for uh is the fact that it did not try to be jurassic park um whereas congo was trying to basically uh, hold a mirror up to it that's a very good point to make and i think that this one was the more cerebral and kind of adult version of his material yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and they didn't, you know, they didn't try and just reinforce that. Like, hey, look how we're distancing ourselves from Jurassic Park. It was just, here's a, you know, it just made itself as a movie, as an adaptation. It did, it took, it put Jurassic Park out of its mind, whereas Congo could not do that. Um, and so, you know, it starts off and it is so Michael Crichton. It's not even funny. And I say that yeah. in the best way. You well, know, you've hey, got bef- your... Before we get into it, let me ask you this. If you sure. could summarize, summarize Sphere in just a, a quick concept, like what would your quick description of this movie be? The Abyss meets Solaris. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take it um, a step further. I'm going to say it's Solaris meets The Thing meets Aladdin. Really? Okay. Uh, explain that. 
well, I guess we'd really kind of be spoiling it if we if we did that. I'll I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll stick a pin in that and I'll I'll come back to that at the very sure. end and we can talk about that. But uh, you you said this movie started off at as like peak Michael Crichton, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's got like, you've got a team of scientists who have to be brought in that all represent a different field of science. And they're all just, you know, really, really, really good characters that you're going to enjoy following. You know, you've, take for example, Ian Malcolm, Alan Grant, Ellie Sadler, all these different, you know, types of scientists, uh, all with great, you know, just character to them. So we've got that going on. We've got this mystery, some kind of cover up, you know, you've got this plane crash in quotes and there's. Uh, government affiliation. So a scientist is being brought in for approval because something has gone wrong. Uh, and that's all, kind so of Michael of this... Crichton's whole thing, right? Is like a, yeah. a, an expert in something getting thrown into a bad situation and then people compressing very uh, complex uh, concepts to him in a very easy way to understand. Absolutely. So yeah. it's starting off, it's starting off with like all the things that were good and worked in Jurassic Park. I know I said, we're trying to put that out of our mind, um, but it is, it's it's distancing itself in in the sense that it's a whole different uh, landscape, and I say landscape seascape here in this case, um, <laughs> and it's so it's just got all the great elements of a Michael Crichton thing going off, and the first bits of dialogue are spoken by none other than Huey Lewis. So yeah. I really wanted to try and figure out why the hell, is there some kind of connection between him and Barry Levinson? Like why was that yeah casting decision made? But it was a pretty cool cameo. Has he been in other um, Barry Levinson films? I really don't know. I didn't even have time to check. Because uh, there's only like so. six or seven like performances in this whole movie. There's not a whole lot of actors in it, but who, Huey Lewis being on. one of them was weird. Yeah. Yeah. And may I say, uh, it's a great cast. You know, you've got Peter Coyote. You've, oh, sure. You've, I, Liam Schreiber, I think, is a little bit overrated myself. And, you know, some people are really, they're not going to understand what the hell I'm saying here. I'm saying that I think Liam Schreiber is a little overrated. And I think one of the best performances in the movie is Sharon Stone. So yeah, I would say the first are... half of this movie, Sharon Stone does some really good work. Yeah, yeah. For first half of the movie, it does start to get well. To get so, a some, some things as... are asked of her character in the second half of the movie that I think are a little bit ridiculous. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of the second half of the movie is ridiculous, and that's where it starts to fall off. Now, granted, we'll get there when we get to the second half. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So, like I was saying, you you get all these great Michael Crichton elements. There's a cover up of some kind. There's just that mystery element. There's the science. There's the secrecy, the, you know, involvement of institutions that you wouldn't think are involved in this kind of thing on a scale that they wouldn't be. So uh, we get introduced to our characters and our, our cast and everything. Um, Dustin Hoffman. If you put Dustin Hoffman in something, it's almost a guarantee that it's going to be rock solid. You know, it's just you're, you can't go wrong with it. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, had been big for a few years at this point. And was kind of a household name. And all of the science jargon and everything is just, it's easy enough for you to figure out and to take something away from it if you're not an expert or kind of a layman. Uh, But it's also enough for the, uh, I don't know, science geeks to pick up on and say like, oh, okay, well, this kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. And just in in the way that Michael Crichton always does, he's taking things that are kind of implausible and making them seem like they make total sense in your mind. Yeah, he makes, you know, like reading his stuff, it makes you feel smarter because of that you know, a uh, scenario we discussed just a second ago where they have to compress these like really complex things into a very easily digestible way to, to read it. And I think this book uh, is kind of, and I think he intended it for it to serve as a companion piece to uh, the Andromeda strain. And the Andromeda strain is, is the same kind of like opening structure in a lot of ways. You have this virus that is alien to earth and killed a lot of people in a town and experts are brought in and they're immediately like sent underground to this giant laboratory and they start telling them just about how like the air, you know, uh, system recycles stuff and, how to how they eat food and farm down underneath the ground and stuff like that and so the stuff that's really ancillary to the plot and it doesn't matter but at the same time when you read it you start to feel like just oh I'm pretty smart because I'm I'm getting all these words in you know this is making sense to me so that was Crichton's yeah. real uh, the the beauty of his work is you felt smart as you read it exactly so we're introduced to uh, Peter Coyote who's again just such a great actor pretty much anything he's going to be voice, in is, yeah. Is, yeah exactly um, there's some opening dialogue where he uh, he and Norman are, you know, exchanging pleasantries and everything. And he's like, you know, Norman has been told that he's here for a psychological study on the people who were involved in a plane crash. But he hasn't even had ample time to meet with these people. So the mystery is already on. It's on. And then he gets a glimpse of like his former student uh, or protege who's there. Why would he be there? 
and his ex-girlfriend is there. Um, so all of this mystery is, is going on. And then Peter Coyote's character is explaining to him what's going on. And he says, you know, we have brought you in because of a report that you wrote for the uh, original Bush administration. And he says that was about a possible encounter with an alien being. And Peter Coyote's like, you want to come with me? <laughs> you know? So the mystery just keeps and keeps getting just unraveled and they do such, they do a really good job of it. I mean, this movie starts off really, really strong. Um, and then of course we go underwater, we go to the habitat and I think the introduction to the habitat and the ship, uh, are actually done very, very well. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Yeah, this movie starts off great because it starts off uh, with such a mystery. You know, you don't know what's going on. It, You know, it's I, I guess the very, very beginning is kind of funny because we see Dustin Hoffman, you know, waking up in a helicopter with Huey Lewis. I mean, that in of itself <laughs> is interesting right there. How did we get to there in the production of this film? You know, but uh, yeah, it's it's the same thing. That sounds, the, that sounds like a dream or something. It <laughs> does. Yeah, well, Huey Lewis that, my, my, was flying it. My first note is, is that Huey Lewis? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Huey Lewis. I I, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's, uh, and then it, it does the Michael Crichton thing like we were talking about. You know, it, it's, it, it throws you in and then kind of like, it makes you feel smart. Like, oh, I'm, I'm like this guy. I'm the surrogate for, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character. But, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character, and, you know, I don't remember anybody's actual character names in the movie. See, Sharon Stone. And he says, uh, you know, like, oh, Beth, is that you or whatever her name is? And so we immediately know the two have a history, but one of the faults of the movie, and I think we'll discuss a few here, is that we don't really get, we, we get background on those characters, but I don't think it's really ever felt. So the, the story is that at these, these two characters had a relationship. Justin, Dustin Hoffman was married and had an affair with Sharon Stone's character, and she tried to kill herself because of it, because she is a mentally fractured person. And his entire team makeup is there because uh, he just wrote it into this report that he kind of you know, kind of skirted under, you know, real quick, you know, without really doing all of his research, just so he could get $35,000 from the government for doing the, you know, the research for the Bush administration writing the paper. But we, he doesn't play the character like this guy who is a short cutter or a jerk in a lot of ways, you know, like I, I never felt that from this character. This is a guy who, you know, uh, in a way, this woman is mentally a woman's blood was almost on his hands. You know, he's a guy that didn't do the full research for the report. Dustin Hoffman is strongest in drama and comedy roles. And I believe he was sorely miscast in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a fantastic actor is great in The Graduate, uh, and even something like Dick Tracy, you know, he's, he's still pretty funny in, but in this film, I don't think, it's, it's not Kramer versus Kramer material, you know, it's, it's here's, fear, it's, uh, go yeah, ahead. Here's kind of why I disagree with that, I think it's good casting because it's unlikely, um, it's a man who you would not expect to find in this situation, and thus, you don't know if he's going to win or not, however, I think you're right in saying that because he doesn't often can't handle action. And grant, again, like to what I'm saying is you, you in this scenario, you would need someone who probably wouldn't uh, actually. But Dustin Hoffman is phoning this performance in. He's yeah, not well, even he, trying. Yeah. And I, I you know, it's it, the, the action is one thing, but it's like this, this so the way the script is written, the first half of the script, uh, he is a different character than he is in the last half of the script. You know, he has to kind of step up and, yeah. you know, uh, do some things that. Uh, are not, you know, he has to rise to the occasion basically because a lot of other characters are dead at that point. But my my main qualm with it is that I never felt that this character is a guy who was taking shortcuts, who was uh, maybe less than careful with another person's uh, safe being in his hands. You know, what, yeah, okay. It's just kind of we were told he's like this smart guy and he's got a couple of errors with his ways, and then it's just kind of like, and then he's just Dustin Hoffman, you know. So that's that's I guess kind of like. This movie sets up like such great mystery. I think that the casting was right in everybody but Dustin Hoffman. You know, I think even Leah Shriver plays the performance great. I think Samuel Sam Jackson is fantastic in this movie, oh, yeah. and Sharon Stone for at least the first half of the movie does a great job. The second half, they definitely um, you know have some tropes that she has to deal with that I think that uh, were a little unfair for her to have to you know maneuver. But um, yeah, so 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 getting into meeting the rest of everybody else, I, I really like Sam Jackson's character in this movie because he's got the best lines. The character is clearly the smartest out of anybody, and uh, he's creepy. He, 
He is creepy, but he's dealing on a he's on a different level of intelligence than yeah. like other people. And I don't know if like you know I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone and like everything they're saying is just like completely over my head, and I just kind of be like, oh, okay, yeah. And I felt like all the uh, the Sam Jackson was playing the character like that. You know, he's the there's a moment in this movie, and it's kind of the central question of the whole movie. Is that, uh, you know, and we'll spoil this part because, you know, it's, I guess we'll talk about it in a minute, but this is not, when they're brought in, they're brought in to, uh, to contemplate a discovery that is made at the bottom of the sea. Uh, and it turns out that this has to do with uh, some time travel. And the idea is that their very being there uh, would implicate, would uh, mean that they do not survive this encounter at the bottom of the ocean. And that is kind of one of the general themes of the entire movie, them trying to figure out the puzzle of like, you know, uh, are they going to die or are they not going to die? If they're not going to die, what does that mean? You know, and his uh, character's ability to come up with that idea when everybody else is still kind of like marveling at the fact that there's something at the bottom of the ocean just shows how much of a different plane he's working on, right. you know. And I, I think Sam Jackson does a great job with what's asked of him here. But mm-hmm. um yeah. Yeah, and the fact that he's not even afraid of the idea of dying down there, the you know. <clears throat> yeah, it's like math to him. It's like this big mathematical problem he worked out and he's like, "Oh, okay, 2 plus 2 equals we die down His here." Deductive on the logic of the ocean. is is how we call it. Yeah, it's because of the unknown mm-hmm. event. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh why the military is out there and what this thing is at the bottom of the ocean? Yeah. So, uh, I remember reading this book and going into it and knowing that there was a uh, a discovery that's made at the bottom of the ocean, but the way it's described, uh they're laying fiber optic cable across the ocean and then the line snaps in half. And those things are like just about indestructible, so something very sharp had to destroy it. So, they go down there and find out that it is the fuselage of a gigantic spacecraft on the bottom of the ocean. Uh and the idea is that this is an alien spacecraft. So, they have called in Dustin Hoffman's character who wrote the paper on what to do in this event and is have assembled the team that he suggested in said paper to go down there and take a look at everything. Uh, and it is made up of uh, some of the brightest minds in their field, uh, astrophysicists, uh, mathematicians, and then uh, himself as a uh, psychologist. Um, because if there is, in fact, an alien being down there, you would have to, you know, learn how to communicate with it. And maybe, you know, it would help to have somebody down there that, uh, you know, could deal with something on an emotional level that we might not know about. And then also there's a marine biologist, which is kind of, it's brought up as like, why would you include this person in this equation? I mean, we are on the bottom of the sea, but this is an alien life form, you know, like, and I know that there have been, uh, I think when James Cameron made his movie Aliens of the Deep or Aliens of the mm-hmm. Abyss uh, not that long ago, uh, what he did was he went down to heat vents that were on the bottom of the ocean because it's the most uh, unlike Earth environment on, on the entire planet. Um, the almost unearth like I guess and he brought marine biologists down there and they go around and they look at like tube worms and shrimp and stuff like that because this is probably what us uh, our first encounter with alien animals or alien life forms would be like this situation around these heat vents so it kind of makes sense that you would want to have somebody like that who could think about the most extreme forms of life and was an expert in that field you might want to have them there to you know kind of contemplate what these creatures could be like so but uh he threw her into the report just because he had a crush on her at the time or because they were dating or having an affair or whatever. And uh, it's kind of like the downfall of his character. Uh, and really the downfall of everybody is kind of like how slapdash a lot of the stuff was that he put together. So, um, yeah, so they go down there to take a look at the ship. There is a uh, a submersible, uh, I guess, underwater living area that they are living in. Queen Latifah works there. I think that's important to the plot. Uh, and they go on to they find their way into this ship and go into it to check out what's going on. And, you know, up until this point, Brady, you were saying this is like peak Michael Crichton, that this stuff was working really well. This movie starts off strong because the mystery uh, is unfolding to the audience in a very organic way. This movie doesn't waste a lot of time at least in the beginning, uh, of getting you into everything. You know, you're, 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 you're down there and you're on that alien ship within like 10 minutes of the movie starting, and it doesn't feel like it's going too fast. You know, there's enough mystery built about everything. You want to find out what's going on. So they start walking around this alien spaceship and start noticing that it's uh, very, very much like something that would be built for humans uh, to be on. The door, I think, is like five feet tall. Uh, once they get inside, they notice that there are other footprints inside that look humanoid in nature. Uh, they keep walking around until they actually find uh, a receptacle on the wall that has the word trash written on it. So immediately they're like, okay, this is really, really weird. What's going on here? Turns out they actually find a dead captain 
in the ship with blunt force trauma to the head. And this is what I was talking about when I started to talk about the the um, comparisons to the thing, uh, because it reminded me a lot of them going, you know, finding the dog at the beginning and then going to the other station and then finding everybody dead. And it looked like they had, you know, all turned on each other and killed each other. It looks like this guy was murdered in his uh, in the spaceship. And I remember in the book, I think he's holding on to a, a can of Coke that he had crushed in his hand. And then one character makes the joke like they they pick it up and they realize like, oh, my God, this is a, a this has come from the future. You know, this is not something that would have because I think it's it's underneath a bed of coral, which had to have taken 300 years to grow or something like that. So the idea is that this ship has been there in the bottom of the sea for about 300 years. And one of the characters says, oh, well, Coke is still going to be in business 300 years into the future or however far this thing has come from. I'm going to you know invest a lot of money or a lot of stock in that. And then he looks at the bottom of it and has like Japanese lettering on it or something like that. And he goes, oh, scrap that idea. Uh, which was, you know, funny because this book was written in 1987 when like Japan was becoming like the dominant economic power in the world through like tech and stuff like that. So anyway, um, so now we're dealing with the idea of, uh, you know, why is this ship from the future gone way back in time and at the bottom of the ocean? And the movie does a great job of setting up little things like I think uh, Leif Shriver's character takes a hammer and starts banging on the door of the ship to try to get in. And up until this point, they have decided that the ship must have crashed on Earth and is still in one piece. But Leif Shriver's banging on the door with a hammer, and it's making, like, indentions in the door. So Sam Jackson's character says, well, if this thing crash-landed on Earth, why is this little hammer being banged by this skinny scientist making dents in it, you know? He's the guy who's always looking at the stuff with, like... um, kind of stepping outside of the situation and breaking everything down and trying to look at it like logically. And it's really great to have that character there because he's proposing these ideas to the audience that are like the core central mystery to the movie. So um, then we're walking around the ship uh, and they come to a giant cargo hold, which has a massive golden sphere in it. And we hit probably the first big snag of the movie right here because there's no reason that this sphere should be gold. You know, like I think every um, uh, piece of artwork that I had seen about this movie or maybe even descriptions in it were that the sphere was silver. It was basically just a gigantic ball bearing, I think, is maybe even how it was described in the book. And I think Sam Jackson even said when he went back and saw the movie and saw that it was a gold ball, he was like, oh, that's weird. Because when my mind, when I was playing the character, it was it was silver, you know. Uh, but yeah, so they, they see this thing and it's it's crazy because there's like, okay, this is, this is not of earth, right? This is some sort of like alien structure. What is it? And after standing there contemplating what it is for a few seconds, Dustin Hoffman's character says that he doesn't want to be the one who points it out, but they are not being, everything in the room is being reflected, but them in the sphere, uh, which probably shows that it is choosing to not reflect them. So Brady up, up, up into this point in the movie, I think it's done a pretty good job of setting up the mystery. So this is kind of like the end of the third act in the movie. When you were watching it today, what were your feelings getting to this point when you actually encounter the sphere? A um, couple things. One, I thought it was interesting that the sphere doesn't get its own big entrance. It's big reveal. It's just kind of yeah, there. Yes. And it's for very first shot, you only see about like an eighth of it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I, I think the fact that it's gold is interesting. I like the texture on the outside of it. Um, there's no real reason for it to be there, uh, except to probably give the audience the idea that it's not, you know, metal. And doesn't the, doesn't the book say that it's a complete, it's just one big ball of liquid. Uh, it might, so I, it's been over 20 years since I've read it, but yeah, possibly. kind of wavy texture that it has on the outside, uh, might just be there for the audience to help them understand that it's not metal. It's not just a big metal ball. Yeah. Um, but I think that was definitely, um, a throw. It felt to me like kind of an homage to Solaris, which is, mm-hmm. uh, for those of, yeah. you, of you who might not have seen Solaris, Solaris is a, uh, book by Stanislaw, excuse me, Stanislaw Lim, who was, uh, the, it was turned into a film by the Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, it's a fantastic film. It's like three hours long. And then it was remade, uh, about 10, maybe 15 years ago by Steven Soderbergh with James Cameron producing. And it definitely has a lot of story structure and themes that are almost identical to Solaris. And that really didn't appeal or like it wasn't apparent to me until I, on this viewing of the movie, I started to kind of connect the dots for that. But uh, Solaris is about a gigantic, it's, it's a, it's a planet that is an ocean and the ocean is an intelligent being. Uh, so a group of scientists have been studying Solaris for a long time. And it's the story of one character going out there to, visit Solaris and study it. And while he is out there, 
and the, the planet is just an ocean. The whole thing is an ocean. Looks just like when it's shown in the movie. Kind of look even looks like the sphere. Uh, but his dead wife shows up on the spaceship with them, uh, orbiting Solaris, and uh, then hilarity ensues from there. But uh, yeah, I think that the the structure of it and it looking like almost like a liquid the whole time, I was starting to get some real hard Solaris comparisons. Yeah, little here. things. Um, yeah. So like I was saying, I. I... I really like the sphere's presence in the whole thing. And occasionally they will cut back to the sphere when, like you, I think you called them hijinks just now, things have started to go awry. And you'll just kind of see that the sphere is sort of working things. It's, it's sort of pulling strings here. Again, Solaris, uh, the Soderbergh version is what I'm referring to, uh, will do similar things. But the sphere as a character in this, I like. It's not... This movie still kind of keeps your human characters at the forefront because that's one what we're going to be uh, connecting with is human beings and not a giant ball. That's what the sphere is doing. It, that is the story that it is playing out. So what you're saying is the sphere kind of is the catalyst that gets the human characters interacting against each yes. other in the movie. Now correct? I also don't mind yeah. the fact that it's never clear, and we're jumping ahead here. It's never clearly stated why the sphere would be doing this. That kind of uh, broadens the scope of the entire thing is the fact that we don't know who the sphere is, where it's coming from, what its purpose is, why it's pitting these people against each other. Our point, Crichton's yeah. point, is just to say this is how these characters are going to deal with what the sphere is doing. I almost said with what Solaris is doing to them. Um, and <laughs> by the end of the story, when they are three characters decide we're just basically going to stay quiet about this so that that unknown event uh, that the spaceship has logged can stay that way. Um, the sphere takes off. It flies out of the ocean and goes into space, ready to go find a new species to basically mess with or control or manipulate or do whatever it is that it wants to do to them. Because human beings, three human beings have stood up to it, I guess. And I don't even know if st- standing up to it is the right term. But yeah. sort of like um, basically going against what it tries to do as a... A, a, you know, intelligent entity, the human beings have now outsmarted it. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, the, the story is... See, okay, I'll, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So I guess I'll put a pin in that like you said earlier. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's take it back real quick to the um, to Sam Jackson's character. Sure. After they encounter the sphere, everybody's just like, well, what is this thing? I think that... Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Navy guy, the Navy leader, what is uh, the, the actor's Peter, name who played Coyote. him? Yeah, Peter Coyote. Okay, I knew it was some animal. I was going to call him Peter Shrimp for some reason. But uh, Peter Coyote says this thing was it was made on purpose. It is alien in nature, and it has a purpose. So we got to figure out what that purpose is. Well, the movie isn't really, in the book, I don't think either is really interested in, in deciding what the purpose is so much as it is, like you said, uh, studying how these characters in a very tense situation will interact with each other and then interact with an alien life form. Because the sphere is, it's it's at least discussed or hinted at that it is alive. When Crichton was writing this, he said that he wanted to make a movie about, or excuse me, a book about what it would be like to interact with an alien life form and how we as human beings can't really understand what something truly alien is. It's almost a Lovecraftian kind of idea. You know, if we, we there are things in this universe that we cannot wrap our minds around. So we might be interacting with an alien right now and we don't really even realize it. Like, what if the sun was actually an alien? What if it wasn't a star? It was just an alien being that gave us all life and uh, is slowly killing us through cancer at the same time because it's displeased with us or something like that. You know, like just weird yeah. ideas like that. I think Sam Jackson's character even says that uh, whenever they are going to go onto the spaceship that we can't expect them to look humanoid or insect-like or, you know, be as tall as us or whatever, uh, that they may not even have a death cycle. And if they don't have a death cycle, then life and death don't mean anything to them. They could very easily kill us, and it would mean nothing for, you know, for them at all. So he's very apprehensive about going onto the spaceship in the first place. Well, we find that that's kind of what goes on with the sphere. It, it is, it's seemingly immortal. Seemingly, it is God for all intents and purposes. You know, it, it can do anything it wants. It can create matter. It can manipulate reality. Uh, it's, it's omnipotent, it seems. 
well, maybe not completely omnipotent because it kind of needs a gateway uh, to interact with people. So that kind of brings to the next plot point, which is that Sam Jackson's character, uh, Harry, really wants to get inside of the sphere. Like, first of all, he comes up with the idea that you can go inside of the sphere. Like, that's a thing that could even happen, you know. Uh, so he does. He goes inside of the sphere, passes out. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's character has to go into the ship to find him and bring him back. And then he is unconscious for a while. He wakes up later and is not himself in any manner. Uh, and, you know, some weird stuff starts happening after that. But I did find some, you know, funny like comparisons to Alien because he, you know, is asleep for a while. Then he wakes up and the first thing they do is they cut to a kitchen scene where he's not acting like himself oh, yeah. you know, and kind of acts Total bizarre and chokes on something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. When you know this, this movie does it. It has uh, nods and homages to uh, other science fiction films, like The Thing, you know, like Alien, like Solaris. It's, uh, it, but it, you know, it. I don't know that it ever really becomes its own thing. To be completely honest with you, it, it kind of leans too heavy on the homages, and uh, that's why I think I'm going to say what I said when we were talking about Congo: is that this is dying for a remake. I don't think Barry Levinson was the proper director to handle this movie. Yeah. I think that uh, it could be done uh, again, uh, you know, to great effect in a different uh, director's hands with a different cast. But I will give the movie credit for this: it cast adults in adult roles. Hello. I don't know. Yep, this yeah, was, we, we, we talked. <laughs> yeah. Keep going, keep going. This is something I think we both feel very passionate about. It's it's not twenty five year olds who are just cookie cutter, entirely right. too good looking. You know, you get a your your lead character is in as well into his fifties. You know, I keep keep going. I'm sorry. It's hard to get millennials into theaters in the first damn place, and it's going to be extra hard if you cast older people in those roles. So, you know, if you if you have very capable actors uh, who, you know, like Dustin Hoffman uh, in, in this, uh, you know, that you want to cast in the movie, it's not really something you can do anymore because people, you know, younger people are who you're trying to get into the movies. And you do that through, you know, exciting movies with younger people that they want to see a reflection of themselves on the screen, you know. So but um, yeah. So anyway, to, to, to get back to it. uh then the movie starts to spiral, uh, well, maybe not even spiral out of control yet, but things start getting a little bit weird. We have the scene where, there's a scene where Queen Latifah, and I think she's a fine actress in anything she's mm-hmm. been in, um, tries to go out and I think she's trying to deliver something to the submarine. Because if she doesn't go out there and hit a switch, the submarine has an emergency off button and it will float up to the surface with basically backup tapes of what's been going on uh, in case everybody dies. That they, they can put together up top what had happened to the people below. On her way back, she is engulfed by a school of jellyfish and killed because the jellyfish get into her suit somehow. It's a pretty gross scene where she drowns. But, I, man, okay, so... <laughs> They show a, a, a an amazing lack of concern for her death scene, and this all happens, I think, right before Sam Jackson's character wakes up. Yeah, you know, she's killed in this extremely gruesome way, and like everybody on back on board the the station is just kind of like looking like they don't care at all. They're just kind of like listening to her and her death throes, and they're all just kind of like, eh, all right, I guess she's dead. You know, I mean, she wasn't a character that was strictly important to the plot, but at the same time, it's like this is these people are encountering the first of many deaths. They should definitely be freaked out about what just happened to this poor woman, but they're really not. So um, that's where we start to pick up on the fact that something something abnormal is going on and we'll get back to the Solaris comparisons again, because in Solaris, the planet can actually manifest uh, your version of a memory of something. So in Solaris, uh, you know, we'll talk about the Soderbergh version here. Uh, George Clooney's uh, wife committed suicide and she shows back up on the ship with him. But it's not actually her. It's Solaris reading his mind and kind of trying to get an idea of what his memories are of his wife. And she shows up there on the ship, but because the last thing she did was commit suicide, she's always trying to do that over and over again. And this is all of this is, um, is, it becomes pretty apparent to you while watching Solaris. This, these are mild spoilers for it, but it's not like it's played like a big mystery. So in Sphere, though, it is played as a big mystery. Where did all these jellyfish come from? You know, like, why are they here? You know, you, you figure something's going on because this is right after one of the characters has gone inside of the Sphere. So she dies, and we move on to the unraveling of the film, I think is a good way to put it. And I'll say this real quick. This movie is very long. It's so long, in fact, that I thought I was about done with the movie and I was going to be ready to record. Yeah. And I think I shot you a message on Facebook saying like, all right, I think I'm, I'm going to be ready soon. And I paused the movie for a second to make some dinner. And I realized that there was still an hour left of the damn thing. And I had no idea where it could go at that point. Yeah, so, I think um, the one of the things that this movie um, should have done is kind of step back on its ambition. Uh, it's not the big 
huge grand scale epic that I think they might have set out to make it seem like it was. Uh, and if it had shaved off about 20 minutes, it could have been not quite the misstep that it ended up being. I think, I think that's yeah part of where the movie fails. It doesn't uh, trade in the things that make the story great, which are the claustrophobia and the characters who can't trust each other. It kind of does that, but it saves that for like the second half. Yeah, of the that's movie that's coming up I think it, entirely too late in the movie. Now they they get that loneliness, yeah. that just sort of bleakness. They do they do that really really well, and they do the they do it through the amazing production design and the spectacular cinematography. Uh, but it's, it all comes too late. It just comes too damn late. You you get strange pacing that leads up to, yeah, just I I don't almost like a really morbid sitcom. Um, yeah. It, so the last half of this movie, let's. I think it'd be it'd be best if we kind of shoot on over to that real quick. They don't go to the back to the ship or do really anything interesting for a very long time. They don't even really discuss like cool sci-fi concepts until they start actually talking to the sphere. Uh, which is calling itself Jerry, and it's a very strange situation going on. They, they, the, the, the alien life form, the sphere, whatever you want to call it, uh, kind of communicates with them by computer. They figure out a way to talk to it, that it's uh, trying to communicate with them in a, in a spherical logic, I think is how they described it. They basically I, I, they come up with the idea of wrapping a keyboard around a sphere and moving from there. Yeah. So. That it's a little strange concept, but uh, other than that, uh, things go awry some more. Another character dies, and it turns out a giant squid attacks attacks the bathysphere or whatever it is there down there in the bottom of the ocean, living in. And that scene is embarrassing um, because the squid is showing up as an actual like squid on their sonar, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that's not how sonar no. works. If it's like gonna, laughable yeah, when you see it for the first gonna time. If you're going to go to the effort to do that, you might as well show the squid, and all you get of it is like part of the squid moving by a window at one point. Um, and then it leads to this big action sequence that is being held by someone who's not an action director and people who are not used to being in action sequences. And it, it, it doesn't work. Um, but I give them credit for making it work as much as they can. And I think Barnes, the Peter Coyote character, even says, turn on our high-voltage defense system, which is like yeah. shocks. And he, like they, so they were that prepped for something to attack the thing that they're going to like shock it from the outside. Didn't. Uh, uh, t- okay. So, I mean, that's clearly a reference to 20,000 leagues under the sea, which is fine. Right. Yeah. Well, one, one, one of several references to 20,000 leagues under the sea, which, you know, is, is definitely on purpose. They wanted this movie to have that aspect into it. And that, co- I mean, you, you don't set something on the bottom of the ocean without some sort of Captain Nemo joke or something right. like that. But, you know, giant squid, giant squids are very scary. Uh, and the whole idea that the book 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea would have been scary uh, to one of the characters is brought up pretty early and I think done pretty well. Sam Jackson's character never finished the book because he would get to the giant squid part and then he put the book down because he was too scared. They try to feed him calamari at one point and he starts coughing it up, which is another kind of like that nod to Alien we were talking yeah. about. Um, but it's also a little bit ridiculous. But uh, at the same time, like... This giant squid attacks the thing and tries to crush it, and we don't ever actually see the giant squid. And I couldn't decide if that was a good idea or if it was a mistake to not show the giant squid. You know, um, it they, they you know, like we're saying they have the ridiculous sonar thing going on, but maybe like a tentacle wrapped around one of the windows, or maybe seeing the eye staring yeah. in at them, something to let you know that it was there. I think would have been just a little bit. You know, we don't need a lot of it, but uh, or maybe seeing a giant shadow of like massive size like swim by them while they're outside would have been cool. Now know? they yeah they do have the little eggs that drop down the squid eggs, and she steps on one, and mm-hmm. a baby squid kind of floats by. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so again, I'll give them credit for trying to get around it a certain way, but why try and get around it a certain way? If it's going to play such a big part, if all this destruction is going to be going on by an attack by a giant squid, why show it on the sonar? Why build it up and then never show it? It was a little, it was just trying to cut around. It was a little forced. One of many strange direction decisions that were made, uh, that I think probably could have worked better had they gone another route. Yeah. So this puts us about three quarters of the way through the movie. And this is a sort of where I started to just accept the fact that it's losing me and it's getting just redundant and predictable. Okay. Go ahead. So it felt like three quarters of the way in, but it was actually only halfway through the movie when this was all happening. And it feels like the kind of thing that's bringing about the third act of the movie. But at the same time, like 
they stretch out the third act of the movie over half of the length of the film. And I think that's a big problem because I would say maybe about 10 minutes after this, I just pulled out my phone and started watching space hog videos. Remember the band space hog? Yeah. Yeah. They're great band. Uh, You know, they had that first album that was really fantastic. And then they had, uh, you know, Mongo city, of course on the second album. So anyway, for the rest of this podcast, we're going to be talking about space hog because, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. This is a part where the second half of this movie, it falls apart for a lot of reasons. And I think, Number one, they didn't build up the um, distrust that these characters were going to have with any sort of foreshadowing or anything from the movie. They sprinkled a few little things around where there's tensions between Sharon Stone's character and Dustin Hoffman's character, but that's really the crutch that the second half of this movie relies on, and it's not built up enough. It's like out of nowhere, her character, and we're, we're... it's established earlier that she's a mentally ill person, that she's a drug addict. She attempted suicide after their affair fell apart and she does not trust Dustin Hoffman's character at all. And then in the second half of the movie, she's played off as just uh, the crazy lady trope, uh, which is offensive and uh, just poorly done in film at best, you know, and uh, it's, there is uh, something to say for the idea that there's a mentally ill character in this cast uh, and she is given the power of a God and things could go very awry. Uh, but it comes across more as just kind of this crazy ex-girlfriend bitch, you know, who yeah. uh, has shown up again in this guy's life. And she's played against, I think, his character more than she's played against her own. And it's a, a real fault of the script. It should have been established early on that there's this is an emotionally fragile, mentally fractured person uh, who is all of a sudden given the power of omnipotence. Uh, because she goes into the sphere as well. Uh, and I guess at this point, we can go ahead and spoil that all three of these characters have gone into the sphere, right. which may be a reason that they are all still alive. Uh, but it's also, we're only really ever shown one of the characters going into the sphere, um, which by the way, they're going into the sphere is kind of ridiculous looking as is, you know, yeah, it's I, the, the way it's shown on screen. I don't know. Like, I think they you... wanted it to be more. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think they wanted it to be more 2001 and it comes across a lot more just kind of hokey, you know? Yeah. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I would have rather that than them just say, oh, you went inside the sphere and have never shown it as a way to try and artistically cut around it, which is, yeah, you know. So again, it well, does- I, I want to say in the book, the sphere actually opens. It, it has a door that opens really? and they walk into the sphere and then it closes behind them. Huh. There's the, the distrust. And I think that's what the whole movie has been building up to is the fact that the sphere is going to have these people start not trusting each other. And then trying to right. kill each other off or gain control of something. And it's and I'm still kind of like, well, why? Why, why, why? And yeah. don't tell me that, oh, well, you're not supposed to really know because that's a cop-out. You know, why is this going on? What is the sphere doing this for? Uh, yeah, and, and that also gets to another problem that I have with the end of the movie. Up until this point now, we're shown, and I guess we really haven't described this because, it's you know, honestly, it's a little ill-defined in the movie itself. But the sphere gives the person who walks inside of it the ability to manifest things. Right. Uh, so if you walk inside of it, and then I guess the thing would be like uh, you want to see a giant J. Edgar Hoover, giant J. Edgar Hoover shows up. <laughs> it's basically the end of Ghostbusters, right? right. She's the form of the destroyer. Uh, but at the same time, it's more established that that power is part of the subconscious mind and not the conscious mind uh characters are manifesting their worst fears in this movie uh at one point and and this is never established i think in the movie but dustin hoffman's character uh is it's presented to us that he is the one who um manifested all the jellyfish that killed queen latifah because we're told oh well you're scared of jellyfish remember which by the way it isn't was not discussed up until that point in the movie and it's also discussed that he's scared of sea snakes and a couple of sea snakes showed up and it's not like he's constant is not consciously projecting these things. They're just kind of happening, you know, uh, which is it shows that the the power that the sphere has granted them or the part of the alien that lives inside of him at that point is something that they can't control, uh, which kind of begs to question the very end of the movie, how it ends. But anyway, to get back to it um, uh, and, and right. just kind of why it's doing that now, granted, like I was saying earlier in the review, um, I do like the fact that the sphere and it's place in all of this is left vague because it just broadens the story of the whole, you know, universe of the sphere and its story and what it's trying to do. But I need a little bit more on why it's wanting to do this to our species. Right. The human species. Is it making these conscious decisions? Like in Solaris, it is ultimately discerned that the planet is the scientists that are going down there to study the ocean. The ocean is in turn studying them as well. Right. And the way it's doing that is by projecting things or humans from their past and seeing how they'd interact with it. So, but in Sphere, we're really never given anything like that. And, 
it works really well in the book. The vagueness of it works really well in the book because I think it's also kind of a bit of a character study. But in this movie, they really kind of drop the character aspect of it, and it's just kind of more of an action movie. It doesn't really capitalize well on what would make the action interesting. The close quarters, underwater, uh, really dangerous environment type stuff. It, it doesn't really do anything with that. Yeah, Sharon Stone in her craziness. I think we've all dated somebody, you know, kind of along these lines. She tries to go out and set off these like detonators and I can't remember what the purpose of them, you know, what, what was the purpose of them? Uh, and then suddenly there's a countdown, there's a bomb that's going to go off and they have to get out of there just on time. And I, I literally started laughing, um, at how typical this was, yeah. how predictable this is. She's setting off mother. Who's going to start doing her countdown, you know? Right, it's so yeah. typical. I'd... I think I think her reason for it was that the the sphere knew that she was suicidal, so it kind of made her do that. Like that's that's what that will, you know because she tried to kill herself after their affair fell apart. And that's I'm sorry, that's not a good enough reason, you know. Hmm. Well, <laughs> but it kind of worked. It was better than nothing, and that's what I was taking from it. Um, <laughs> and so they have to get out. Uh, now, here's another, something that really frustrated me was the fact that Dustin Hoffman, like I was saying, just, I don't think he knows how to play panicked that well. Uh, and whenever they are trying to scramble to get out and the sphere is sort of putting them inside, they're inside of, uh, you know, a puzzle when in fact they're in the escape pod, but it's making them see other things and suddenly puts them inside of the spaceship that they had been studying and they can't find their way out. And the whole time, mm-hmm. like, the music is just building and building and building. And every, you know, the editing is, we're, we're in an action sequence here, but the characters are, like, talking to each other and making jokes and yeah, things like that. I was, like, I was thinking that same thing. There's a part where they get on a little sub to get out at the very end. And if you had put different music in, it would have been a comedy. Yeah. Like, there were, yeah, there were cutbacks to things that were, like, setups of jokes. But it had, you know, Elliot Goldenthal's score, which, by the is way, amazing. great composer. Yes. Oh, God. I yeah. was going to wait to bring him up. But keep going. Well, yeah, we, I'm sure we can talk about it a little more at the end. We can, in fact, the rest of this can just be talking about how great he is. But um, yeah, and it's just kind of like these cross cuts between things that come across more like hokey and jokey than anything else. It's, you know, the pacing of this movie, the tone of the movie, this is, you know, we, we, we do, we've done the, the minute by minute breakdowns on Ghostbusters and Jurassic Park and Goonies to kind of like praise what we really liked about them. If you did a minute for minute breakdown on this, it could be like where the film went wrong, yeah. you know, uh, and it, uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. But I, I, I want to stress is if you've made it this far, you know, we hate complaining about things and you know i don't i don't think we want to complain about it so much as we could have talked about like how great it could have been um if you like the concept behind sphere and you haven't read the book go read it it's fantastic it's it's really it's a, a one that you won't be able to put down it's some of michael Crichton's best oh work. yeah but anyway back to this ending sequence here like you're talking about there's out of nowhere a countdown timer to try to like get them off of this thing because i think for for nothing else uh, it's it's time to wrap this story up. That's just what it felt like, you know. Like, all right, folks, let's go ahead, wrap everything up. And it's kind of like, wait, what what the hell's even going on here, you know? Yeah, exactly. So they make it back up to the surface, and they are picked up by the military, and everybody's safe. But in their decompression uh, period of time, they have to come up with why didn't they die? Like Harry was so certain they were going to die. They have to figure yeah. out the reasoning behind that, and are they going to tell in a debriefing session? Uh, are they going to tell them about the sphere, which they know could be the worst thing for humanity? Because if someone gets their hands on it, they could be like, all right, let's think really hard about killing our enemies overseas, you know, whatever they wanted to do with it. So were they just going to say, we didn't see anything down there, or we don't remember, or they have to come up with that. Now, it's, it's a little bit vague, or I just didn't catch it. Is their plan that they're going to tell the suits that they just, we don't remember, man, our memories are wiped. The explosion wiped. Like, what? What? What the hell is? What was their plan? Well, their plan was that they had been given ultimate power to do anything by this sphere, and that you know, it, since it couldn't fall into the wrong hands, they had to figure out the end of this equation of why they didn't die. And their idea is the only way for us to get out of this is for us to forget everything. And because we've been given the power by the sphere to do anything we want, we can just go ahead and wipe our memories. 
And that's what they do. They make the decision, they hold hands, they close their eyes, then they make the decision to forget about the sphere, which causes the sphere to leave the planet for no reason. Uh, but they just decide to make the decision that, that no one can, you know, that they're just going to forget about it. They're going to wipe their memories and it works. And my big problem with that is up until this point in the movie, the logic of it has been that the sphere works on a subconscious level. No one actually has been shown to desire to make a, uh, to desire some sort of projection. And then that thing's shown up, you know, if, if I'm down there in the bottom of the sea, uh, by myself, there's all sorts of stuff I can think of, you know, that I would think of that would show up that would be completely opposite of giant squids, you know, uh, and that is never shown that it's anything you can consciously control. If anything, it's shown to be a projection of their uh, of of like a subconscious. In fact, we find out that this Jerry entity that they've been chatting with on the computer is actually a part of Harry or I pretty sure that's what we come to understand but it can control itself but harry is not conscious of that thing you know he's just it's a part of him that is broken off and then it is an entity that is around there that likes to interact with them and there is one scene i want to backtrack just for a second that kind of shows dustin hoffman's character's worth in it uh after everyone is dead the entity of jerry shows up and it's chatting with him on a computer and it's asking him where everybody else is and it comes off as like this petulant spoiled child a little brat and he has to disarm it through conversation in order for it not to kill everybody. And we start to see his value as a character there because he's a psychologist or psychiatrist, or I don't really don't know which one he is in the movie. Uh, he's able to sit down and, and, and talk Jerry down almost. Well, and then he finds out later that Jerry's actually Harry. And I, I really like that scene. It's him by himself. The scariest thing in this movie is this uh, spoiled child. Yes. With complete. Oh, the, control yeah, and it's over so the that, okay. Well, I got to praise the movie on this right here. There was some legitimate chills to come out of nothing but that white text over a black screen. These simple childlike yes. things of him being angry or happy. And, of course, it's set to Elliot Goldenthal's very subtle music, the actor's reactions. That was unnerving, not knowing what yeah. this thing was going to say next or feel next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was If there was more of that in the movie, I think it. if this movie were to be remade, I would like for it to be a little bit more cerebral and not count on the action so much, and I would like for it to have more scenes like that, you know, like talking to Jerry, you know. Maybe they could bring in some um, experts on, you know, the possibility of alien life and try to have them kind of rework the script to emphasize that stuff more. I think that's the scarier movie than having a giant squid try to attack the yeah. station. But they should probably still leave that in a remake because it's kind of a cool scene. It's just it wasn't used right in this movie, so... So anyway, let's get back to the end of the movie real quick. Um, they somehow are able to wipe their memories and the sphere flies off. And then the, I think the last line of the movie is like Sam Jackson asking Dustin Hoffman why he's holding his hand. Yeah. And then these characters are just their, their memories are wiped. They don't remember what happened down there in the bottom of the ocean and the sphere leaves. And I remember walking out of the theater being like, well, that wasn't how the book ended. And I don't think that's the ending that I wanted to any degree. It's just like. You know, it's almost like uh, that scene in The Simpsons where they have to kill Poochie and he just like flies off. And then there's this like text on the screen that says Poochie died flying back to his home planet <laughs> or something like that. That's kind of how I felt of the, the ending of Sphere. It's just kind of like the Sphere's gone now. Don't worry about it. it none of this happened. None of it. Mattered, I, I don't mind you know? the Sphere leaving so much. But the whole thing about let go of my hand was just kind of uh, let's let's have some final dialogue here. Final exchange that sounds yeah. kind of deep mm-hmm. just so we can put this movie in the can and get it in theaters. Um, yeah. And then, there- you know, I would have felt that, uh, um, I'm, uh, just real yeah, quick sure. that if, if it had been shown that they had the ability to project these things and fight with each other while they were down on the ship, on the, um, the, the submersible the uh, station that they are down at the bottom of the ocean, then I think it probably would have made for a much more interesting third act where they could actually like bring things into existence to try to defend themselves from each other or attack each other and keep themselves safe. Like maybe each one of them took up a part of the ship and then had like their own like, I don't know, manifest like skeleton warriors or something like that. Uh, that that would have made a little bit more sense. Uh, and it kind of would have played on the idea that they can't let the sphere get into anybody's hands because your darkest desires are the things that are going to happen. Because they even make the point of saying when they're up in the ship and the, uh, leaving, excuse me, at the end of the movie, that they are three enlightened people. They are scientists. They are people of ideas, not people of violence. And they turned on each other. Of course, they did it subconsciously. And I think that's my big problem with the movie. My biggest problem with the movie is that this is all a movie that takes place on the subconscious, that these characters aren't actively making decisions to do anything to each other. You know, like, 
the thing works because people are in a feral situation and uh, they're trying to protect themselves from what they think is an enemy, right? Whereas this, it's just kind of like, I couldn't fault, if this was you and I in the bottom of the ocean and you conjured up some sort of like giant squid, I couldn't fault you for it because this just happened, you know? And we, we'd be like, all right, well, we just got to get out of here anyway, you know, because we can't trust uh, our own minds. Or we could have figured out the whole th- way to get the sphere out of there before we even got <laughs> up yeah. to the top of the ocean. Like, why was that decision something that had to be made in the bottom of the ocean? I guess the answer to that is because there's bombs that are about to go off. Well, why are the bombs going to go off? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, so... That might be my end of sphere. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so, okay. We, we, I think all in all, we think the movie is kind of a, a, a misstep, an unfortunate misstep, a fortunate adaptation that's probably due to the fact that it was with filmmakers who just weren't equipped to make this type of movie. Unfortunately, the director of Diner isn't the guy who's supposed to make this cerebral thriller that, you know, was it, it was just, you know, prime real estate. Like this should not have just been handed off to somebody because, oh, he makes a certain type of movie. So this will be, you know, an unlikely choice. Uh, So I think, like I said, if the movie had just kind of stepped back from its ambition a little bit and not, tried to think that it's as play itself as sophisticated as it thinks it is um then it probably would have worked bring scale Mm -hmm. this thing back and you're gonna get solaris meets the abyss and it's probably gonna work um if it had been in the hands of another director you might have gotten that so i think i think that's kind of where the movie falls off now i do want to talk about some of the things i really enjoy about it like we said yeah uh elliot goldenthal the the composer of alien 3 which has a beautiful score and a lot of other mm-hmm. uh, good movies. Uh, just he is doing some. He's turning in some really cool stuff here. Very unlikely stuff, and it's very melodic. It's got some really. It's real subtlety to it. Again, I'm going to give it to the to the filmmakers where they're putting some like really kind of light music, sort of like melancholic music over moments that you would think would be very rousing and have just this epic grand scope of a score. I just said I was going to name off a bunch of shit. Oh, the cinematography is is incredible. Uh, okay, here's another thing that I also praise Jurassic Park for. Um, the production design. All of the tech and hardware is not overly science fiction. It's still very real yeah. and very plausible, and it's not in your face. Look at my production design. Can I have an Oscar? No. It's- the computer interfaces look like something that were like real at that at the time yeah. in the late uh, 80s and 90s. Yeah. yeah, and we're on a submersible uh, habitat. It's... It's, it doesn't have to be anything with just giant um, iPads on a wall, touchscreens with just things that are just so unrealistic. Uh, so I, I give them credit for that, too. Unfortunately, the things that I am giving them credit for aren't things that would have saved the movie. So unfortunately, I guess my if someone were to say, should I watch Sphere? I would have to probably say no. Watch a fan edit that cuts a lot of the movie out. Yeah. Uh, or read the book, you know, read the don't book, uh, yeah. don't bother with the movie. Yeah. Um, could it stand to be remade? I, I think that there... I I think yes, uh, but very unlikely because it just seemed like they had so much ba- banking, like you know, set on this, and that it was. I don't think that filmmaker uh, producers or studios or whoever is behind that decision would say, "Oh, well, it's it's going to work." It didn't work then because of the same reasons it wouldn't work now. No, it's because you gave it to the yeah. wrong filmmakers. Barry Levinson is a hell of a director and writer, but. That's not just the, not the right material for him. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Another thing I do want to give it credit for is I'm a bit, I'm really into like opening title sequences. This is among the best opening title sequences I've ever seen. It is awesome. Really, it is so cool. Because I, I, okay. What, what, what did you like uh, about well, it? Well, okay. So you get kind of like water ripple designs over the text and everything. You get the images, the kind of classic images of beasts of the of the deep sea. So all of this is already setting up all this mystery. The music is very subtle. It's not big, rousing, epic music. Um, and just the overall design, I thought, was was pretty cool. It sounds like you're not too hot on it. What's up? No, I just I felt that it was kind of out of place in the movie for me. Like, it's not a movie about creatures of the deep. I mean, there are some down there, but it kind of sets it that up. That is kind of this, misleading, yes. Yeah, it's this movie about sea monsters, you know, which, I believe me, I want to see a movie about sea monsters. That I'm, I'm all about deep rising, you know. But uh, when it is used in this in this manner, I think it kind of it set up false expectations for what this movie would have been. I would have been a lot happier with just uh, text over the ocean or even a hard cut to just the title sphere and then a smash cut maybe to him in the helicopter or even something that had to do more with space. Mm-hmm. Cause I, but ultimately, this is a movie about um, 
about the uh, the alien uh, aspects of the mind, the human mind. And I think maybe there could have been some... It, it was definitely of its time. I could see this, like, opening... Whoever made this opening title sequence, and it, it, it feels to me like it was probably some separate production house, which they farmed the, it out to. And they were like, well, what's the movie about? I don't know. There's, like, some giant squids in it. Okay, well, here you go. This is... Uh, you know, we're going to show the... Re- yeah. And it's called Sphere, so all of the names are, like, reflected as if they would be in, like, a giant lens, you know, and they're kind you of, know, like, that, that makes... Perfect sense. As cool as I think it is, it probably is better suited for another movie. So, uh, something that was more specifically about, uh, you know, hey, Peter Benchley's Beast. I don't think you know, they did make that into a made-for-TV movie, didn't they? Uh, maybe yeah. it would have been better for that, yeah. Definitely. That's about all I got on uh, Sphere. How about you? Yeah, I'm kind of the same. Um, if you're curious about this, uh, I would say absolutely read the book. The book is fantastic. Much like Congo, I would love to see a remake of this. I don't think we're going to get that. But uh, to get back to it, you know, Space Hog had uh, looked like about four albums. Uh, you know, the first one was called a Resident Alien. That was fantastic. <laughs> Chinese album was also very underrated. But they were kind of like this glam rock band that came out uh, around like the mid-90s, a couple years before Sphere came out. But uh, you probably know their main song, In the Meantime. That was a huge hit in the UK and in the US. And I I'd say definitely get on Spotify right now and check out uh, Resident Alien and the Chinese album by Space Hog, but uh, you can just skip Sphere. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) All right, Brady, I think that is about all we can mine out of the film Sphere. Uh, We hope that you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, All right, I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And until next time, mahalo. This has been a Pele Media Patreon episode. Thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter and keeping the show going. If you enjoy our bonus episodes, be sure to tell your friends to check us out at patreon.com slash Media. You can also find us online at facebook.com slash Media and Group at gmail.com. Our theme song is Behind Closed Doors by Otis McDonald. Otis McDonald